Disrupting Japan, Episode 86. Disrupting Japan is sponsored by Wall and Case. If you've ever tried to hire staff in Japan, you know how crazy it can be. I mean, there are over 3,000 recruiting firms here, and they're all telling you pretty much the same thing. Well, the guys at Wall and Case are different. When you're coming into Japan, they'll sit down and work out a long term hiring strategy with you. Is it best to start with a country manager? Or perhaps a head of partner sales. Maybe the first step is really a community manager. Now, I've known the team at Wall and Case for a long time, and they've worked with a lot of the companies that have been on this show and with some of the world's biggest brands as well. So, if you're hiring in Japan, you really should talk to Wall and Case. Welcome to Disrupting Japan Straight Talk from Japan's Most Successful Entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero. And thanks for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about something that you and I, and probably everyone else listening right now, has struggled with translation and localization. It's been an industry that has both seen some impressive innovations over the past decade, but is also somehow quite resistant to change. Localization is a part of business that almost every firm has to deal with, but almost no one looks forward to. It's a lot like dealing with lawyers in that way, I suppose. Well, today we sit down with Jeff Sanford, co founder of Woven.io, who say they've developed a one line of code method for taking the pain out of localization and translation. We talk a bit about the mechanics of website localization and the state of the industry as a whole, of course. We also talk about the important and surprising differences between what makes great UI UX with Japanese and Western users, and what kind of tasks machine translation can really be trusted with. And Jeff shares the story of what made him decide to start a company with a co founder who he'd never even met before. But you know, Jeff tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and get right to the interview. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful long term community based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at kotowork with a c.jp. Cheers. So I'm sitting with Jeff Samford, the co founder of Minimal Technologies and the creator of Woven.io. And thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Woven.io at a high level is simply. Localization for, the, for a website, but it, it's more than that. It's more interesting than that. So, why don't you tell us a bit about what it is? So, often people, when you tell them you do website localization, they think translation, which it actually isn't. Translation is a very integral part of it, but we, what we focus on is the, the system of localizing a website. So, let's say you have an English website and you have to create a Chinese version or Spanish version of that website. We handle all of the details of actually creating that, those versions and also managing them and、uh, serving them to your users. Now, there's a lot of companies that are doing that, but you guys have a particularly interesting 
approach to it. Mm-hmm. The, the woven I.O. promise, as it were, is the ultimate in simplicity, right? It's a, right. a single line of code copied into your, to your web page. Exactly, yeah. In the simplest case, you can really take a, a website, even a relatively large website, and have the entire thing uh, translated within minutes. That's, that's the promise, that's the goal, right? Okay. So <laughs> you get a little piece of JavaScript code, you sign up at Woven.io, you get your API key, you put that code in your website, mm-hmm. and suddenly the whole website is Woven.io enabled? Yes, that's it. And how do you localize it? How do you translate? How do you actually get the Chinese and the Japanese onto the page? Okay, okay. So uh, the next step is actually creating those, tra- those translations and putting them in place. So what a lot of people do, especially larger websites, or people who have websites that constantly change, is they'll use our um, automatic translation features and automatic uh, page creation features. So you turn those on and uh, we will automatically add all the pages on your website. We'll automatically translate all of your, all of your content and uh, publish it for users to see. Now, if you don't want to do it automatically, you can also have all the pages added for you and then go in and translate everything yourself. A very common uh, use case is to do the automated translation and then go back and edit and modify it and improve it yourself. Well, that, that would make a lot of sense. But actually, tell me a bit about the use cases. Uh, tell me about your customers. Who's using Woven? A lot of our customers tend to be surprisingly e-commerce websites and, and uh, larger websites here in Japan. Surprisingly enough, J- Japanese companies haven't quite gotten on board with localization yet on their websites. And uh, specifically, the Tokyo Olympics, which is coming up, has really lit a fire under them to, to start working on this. Well, e-commerce makes sense because that way, I mean, someone puts up a new product, it's automatically translated into two or three additional languages, um, and they can go back and refine that later. Exactly. And you can, you can see right then the cost benefit of it as well. Right. And, and so, who else? Is it like uh, travel industry sites or is it a... That's another one. Travel industry... Um, uh, tourism in general, and then also restaurants and things that uh, you, they have a lot of foot traffic from tourists and things like that is also pretty common. Uh, hotels is another one. And about how many clients do you have now? How many sites are being translated, being localized using Woven.io? All right, so this changes all the time, but I think right now... Hopefully it's, it's going about, up. I mean, it yeah. is going up. I think currently it's about 8,000. All right. So, yeah, 8,000 websites. Okay, and of those 8,000 sites, how many are paying and how many are on the free tier? Good, good question. So um, right now, the, pay, the paid ones are definitely the smaller side of it. Oh, they always are. We're definitely. Uh, is that most of our paid users are Japanese right now. I want to dig down into that a little bit later sure. and talk about your overall sales and marketing strategy. But before we do, let me back up a bit. Let's talk a bit about you. Sure. <laughs> You co-founded this company uh, in 2014 mm-hmm. with Hayashi-san. Yes. Well, let, let's back up a bit. What brought you to Japan the first time? Good question. This is the question you always get as a foreigner living in Japan. It's, it's obligatory. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, I just really wanted the experience to live outside of my home country. I had a degree, a computer science degree, so I could have been a developer, but I had this fear that if I had jumped into a career in English, I would never learn Japanese. I didn't want to get stuck in an English wor- bubble, which is a lot of people do here. And I think oh, it's I, easy to do here. So, especially with the internet these days, it's so easy yeah. to just live in your own world, but in Japan. Because of that, I decided to, to do something I knew I wouldn't really enjoy that much, to force myself to learn Japanese so I could work at a company, in a Japanese company, you know, or a company where I'd speak Japanese. So I, I started off being an English teacher. Okay. I did it for about two and a half years. Um, had enough of that. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's two two years is a pretty yeah yeah. I, I didn't. It's a tough job. I don't hate it, but it's definitely not what is going to be my career, and I knew it from the beginning. So I wanted to to move forward. But definitely, I think teaching is much more difficult than people give it credit for. It's a tough, tough job. <laughs> so yeah. I had always done some freelance web development and things. So after that, I had continued and kind of went full time. And I lived in Japan for a little bit doing freelance web development, actually. And then um, I had uh, some weddings back in the States. So I went back for some weddings, actually. And when I was back in the States for that, that's when I got connected with, with uh, Takaharu Hayashi. We actually had some, a few Skype meetings and decided over Skype, let's do it. One of, the, one of my good friends here, a guy from New Zealand, um, is the one who, who said, hey Jeff, there's this guy who's looking to, to co-found with somebody. He's looking for somebody who you know, speaks English or someone who's foreign, has experience globally. So what do you think? So I, I, that's how I got connected with them. Yep. We decided to do it before even seeing each other. We, we decided over Skype. I came back to Japan with the plan to work co-found with this person I'd never even met in person. Okay. And... The company you two have built, it is a very multinational team, right? Yes. Got, yeah. Usually when, when I see startups in Japan that have a, a really good multicultural team to them, it's usually foreign engineers and Japanese support and sales. <laughs> and is that kind of how it's worked out for you guys? It is similar, actually, yeah. Uh, well, we do have one, one of our, actually, the, the first person who joined the company after me and Takaharu, he's actually Taiwanese, but he lived in Australia as well. He speaks Chinese, Japanese, and English uh, fluently. So he's definitely one of the cornerstones of our company. So uh, he works on the business side, of course. He does computers, uh, not computer, he does customer service. And um, he really owns that part and manages it all. And then on the development side, um, what we've done is we try to go half and half. I feel like if you're based in Japan, you should, you should also be uh, employing Japanese people as well. But also because um, we want to have that global community. And I think that's part of the reason it's like this. It's very much half and half English-Japanese. So when we communicate with writing, which we use a, a, a message system, it's mostly English. Uh, if there's a really important message, I'll put it in Japanese as well, even though our Japanese developers can read English. But when we have meetings, it's really half and half. People speak, if they speak Japanese, they speak Japanese, and then I translate to English. If they speak English, then I translate to Japanese, and it's back and forth. Uh, sometimes I feel like it'd be nice if everyone spoke the same language, but I think it's actually a really great, um, especially given what we're working on too. So we have two French developers who speak French together. We have uh, two Vietnamese people joining us soon. I'm sure they'll speak Vietnamese together. So we have, and the Japanese people speak Japanese together, and then I speak English with the Canadian developer. And so it's it, very interesting. It's a very small, like, international community. And for people who are looking for that experience, who really want to work in other languages, especially who want to study English or Japanese, it's, I, I think is a great opportunity. All of the four companies I founded here in Japan and the, also the company, the U.S. company I brought into Japan, in every single case, the spoken communication throughout the company was in Japanese. Mm -hmm. The written communication was in English. <laughs> well, Japanese people, they can, read, they can read and write English pretty well. Well, that's it. Yeah. All, <laughs> all educated Japanese can read English. Yes. Right? Yes. They can all read it for sure. Yeah. And Japanese is a really hard language to write. I, maybe I'm just going on and on. But one other interesting thing actually about, I think, our, um, the product side of our company is... Our des the design of our product really isn't very um, Japanese, for lack of a better word. I, I find a lot of Japanese websites, in general, Japanese websites don't follow that minimalist design, which is really important to us. That's why we're called Minimal Technologies. Well, that is, that is true. Japanese graphic design in general is much, much more cluttered than yeah, I, Western design. I, I agree, but I also think that 
there's much more of an influence on the, from the business side in Japan than there's other places. I think they, they give the design side a little bit more freedom in the West than they do here. In my experience, they always, I'm sure this is the same anywhere, but the business side really wants to, uh, to just pack in the information, which is interesting because oh, okay. Japanese people, they like the information, but Westerners don't like the information. They want less. So you feel in Japan, there, there's like the, the approval committee gets the design and say, oh, well, we need to include these 12 this, more this, points. This, and, this, yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, uh, interesting thing is we, we had a, uh, a, a landing page just for specifically for Japanese um, business people who would possibly use our website. And it was in Japanese. Um, and I wouldn't allow it in English, to be honest, because it was very cluttered and it didn't look um, minimal to me. Mm. And it's the kind of design that you see very, very, it's very common in uh, pamphlets and things for business, businesses here. But it's not the kind that you could really put in English and have, give people a good impression of your company because it, it, it packs in a lot of information, but it's... To, I think to Westerners is too much information. We, we like getting just the bare minimum. And, and there's places for, for having a lot of information, but I feel like they really like it at the top of the page, above the fold. You guys are using all the modern tools, so you're, you're measuring what converts and what doesn't. And do the busy pages convert better in Japanese than the minimalist pages? Yeah, that's actually a uh, difficult problem because people want to have more in Japanese than they do in English. So... I would say going from Japanese to English is much easier because um, it's very easy to, to remove something when you're localizing, but it's much more difficult to add something because that might involve new styling or, or new, um, you might have to rearrange the content in that case in order to handle those, the case, the um, extra information, right? And, and this gets really to kind of the core of localization and translation are different but related things. Yes, yes. Well, actually, let's take it step by step. So we were talking about the different sensibilities in design. Mm -hmm. With the exception of some e-commerce companies, but most companies won't change the design much for each mm -hmm. individual market. They go with a global design. Yes. So the next step is the actual language. Is machine translation good enough? Should, should people really feel okay about putting up their, their website and their information about their company and their philosophy and... and having it machine translated into Japanese and Chinese. And it really depends, first of all, on the language pair. If you're translating between English and Japanese, that's one very heavily supported pair. But at the same time, these two languages are very difficult to translate between. So it's not as good as it, as it would be if it were English-French, for example. Um, our French developers actually help us translating the website into French. And uh, he translated the settings page recently and said, well, I only had to fix like one or two things because it was all fine. So when it comes to shorter, succinct, self-contained sentences and things that don't have context that related to previously said things and stuff like that, it's, it's pretty good. And also I'll add that with uh, Google's new neural, neural machine translations, that we use the neural net to translate, it's actually really good. It's, it's, uh, really? it's a, actually a huge leap is from, from the regular one to the neural one. So. And so after that, you've got a, a kind of step up. You connect with Gengo, yes. which is... a SaaS-based spot translation company here in Tokyo. Right, right. So do, do most of your customers take advantage of the human translation that Gengo provides, or do they kind of outsource it to their own people, or do they just let Google handle it? Not as many people use those as I'd like them to, because uh, I think the uh, standard for, for English or for translations here is a little bit lower than maybe, for example, if you're in Europe, because they don't read it as well. There's not as many people who speak English here, so the, the standard is just a little bit lower. Companies who care use it. They'll use Gengo or the ones who really care the most do it themselves. 
Uh, Gengo is a great service and it really does, the, the translations are, are really good. You can, I've never seen a translation from Gengo that was, that seemed like I couldn't read or couldn't understand. It's, it's always good. But if you really want to, uh, especially with marketing things and like taglines, those kind of things, it's not even related to the quality of the translation. It's, you need someone you can talk to and explain the meaning behind what you want to translate and, and the, uh, the nuances, which is really important when you're, uh, doing marketing material and, and things that are a little bit more uh, uh, sales and things like that, yeah. I guess your customers kind of triage yes. their uh, translation. So some that are maybe technical specs or raw data, they'll let the translation engine handle by itself. Yeah. Some more general informational things they'll outsource to Gengo. And then things that are really advertising copy or headlines or critical yes. things they'll handle themselves. Yes, and I can tell you from experience, at least with us, advertising copy changes completely, like even a different meaning. For us, if you look at the English one and the Japanese one, the meanings are just different. I, I don't oh, even I try to match them because you really want to, to express the feeling more than the meaning, right? So exactly. yeah, that's why it's so important to really have someone that works with you to, to do those. But even then, when you're looking at doing business internationally, translation is only the first step. So even yes. if you've got the website translated, you've got email to send back and forth, you've yes. got people asking you questions in English or Chinese <laughs> that you have to answer now. Yes. Yeah. And how do your customers handle that? Like what, what stage are they at? Are, are they using Woven.io to kind of fill out the website where they already have the infrastructure behind it to handle the different languages? Mm. Or are they sort of using Woven I.O. as like the first step because it's so easy and then suddenly discovering <laughs> we have to answer these customers? That, is, that, is, that does happen, actually. Uh, <laughs> I think it really depends on the users, but um, uh, a lot of users end up just kind of figuring it out as they go. So they'll do it and then they get these, like you said, emails from people and they have to figure out, okay, so now how, how do you handle this? They, they find a service or whatever. That's something that we want to handle ourselves. And we have plans for everything you actually just mentioned. We have plans for emails. We have plans for um, support, multilingual support as well. We, we really want to make it so, because localization, like you said before, isn't just translation. It's a whole system of things, right? So we, we want to have, provide the whole solution for you. You can just plug it in and you're good to go. So that includes, like you said, uh, the support and multilingual support and the emails. Are you going to be rolling out new products in the next couple of months for something like that? Anything you can share? Yes. So right now we're really, we're really focusing on is scaling because I'm sure as everyone knows, that is the, the, a huge issue for people to deal with. And as your user base grows, you have to be able to support it. So as soon as we finish our current project, our next projects are actually um, what, I was, what we were just talking about. So email and multilingual support. I'd like to have some of this stuff out by the end of the year, hopefully more than one or two. But um, of course, we don't have any solid hard deadlines right now that I can give you, but those are things that are really just coming right down the pipeline. They're, they're on their way. Awesome. Let's dive down a bit into some of the more kind of technical problems involved with this. The way Woven.io works is it's a cloud-based service, right? Yes. So when a request comes into server page, that request is partially routed through Woven servers who figure out which translations need to be inserted and then they serve that page, right? So it depends what you're using. So we, we actually have uh, two main services. We have the snippet we talked about before. We have another one, which is um, a library you, you install on your server. And that's the one that when you get the request, it, it gets the, the data from the Woven server and then returns it to the user that way through Woven and, and, and through the servers as well. Uh, the snippet is a little bit different in that 
the user downloads the page and then um, the JavaScript itself will download the translations for the page. We, we use a, a really good a fast CDN. So basically when you're downloading the translation information, it's cached and it's very close to the user. You, sometimes you don't even see it. If someone's trying to, trying to translate to Japanese and English to Japanese, for example, they might not even see it. It just shows up in Japanese from the beginning. So there's really no impact on the latency. This doesn't increase the significantly increase the page load time at all. It doesn't significantly increase. Uh, the JavaScript one has absolutely no effect. The, the, the library one has a very, very small effect. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's important because, I mean, Page load speed these days is directly related to search rankings. It is, yes. SEO is very important, especially yeah. if you're trying to sell things. Yep. Well, SEO, again, though, it's how do you deal with the fact that if it's a JavaScript that is determining the language and, and dynamically substituting the appropriate language, how do you make sure that the pages in each specific language are indexed correctly by right. the search engines? Good question. So... Uh, that's the, the, the main weakness of the snippet. So it's really easy to do, but the SEO isn't as good. So uh, Google says that they will uh, process JavaScript. We've worked on it, worked on it. We've never been able to reliably get them to, to use our snippet to, to translate all the pages. That is the reason that we have the library as well. So in that case, the, the search engines are seeing the translated pages. So in that case, your SEO is, is great. Okay, so would it work with, for example, WordPress? So, I mean, I've been thinking of getting Disrupting Japan content translated into Japanese for like forever. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. So, <laughs> Actually, it's funny, we're looking at it today, the office and, and at your website, everyone's saying, oh, they should use Wolfram.io. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, let's talk about it. I mean, does it work with WordPress? It does, yeah. That's actually, of course, one of the most common ones. Uh, so I would really love to have a WordPress plugin, which we don't have yet, uh, but you can also use it, the, the, the uh, PHP library, it's kind of what we tried to like. What we tried to do is get as far outside of the application as possible. Well, this way, do I have to write code? No. Okay. <laughs> That's the important. There thing. is uh, some configuration to to made, of course. Anytime you you install like a library on, on your server, but besides the configuration, you should not have to write any code. Let Let's move for a minute over to the sales and marketing side. At a high level, is your strategy more bottom up or top down? So, like bottom up is evangelizing engineers and getting the developers excited about it and top-down is more going to the enterprises and saying hey this will save you X amount of dollars and right. make you deliver the project faster what what's your basic approach to to marketing this I feel like we've tried both but right now it's really top-down is what's working the most um, really that surprises yes. me me as well <laughs> I think uh, when we actually when we first launched we expected it to be used by bloggers or if you have small personal websites, and we were really surprised to find all these corporate clients who wanted to use our, our service, and we actually had to pivot. And that was a rough time, let me tell you, in the development side, pivoting, because supporting a website that has thousands of pages and a website that has 100 pages is a different, completely yeah. different you know, uh, job. So those corporate, the corporate websites, specifically, I think, in Japan, is such uh, a big part of the market for us. Well, I mean, they, they certainly pay better. But yeah, well, they, uh, it's, there's really a need for it in Japan right now. Well, what kind of things did you have to change to service the enterprise market? I mean, were there specific features? Was it just different types of... Did you have to hire more sales engineers versus developers? One of the main things that we worked on a lot was the automatic page creation, automatic translation, because when you have such a large website, you just can't do it all by hand. 
So you really need these tools to help you do auto automatically, which really fit into our, our uh, what we want to create as a product. So that worked out well for us. But when we're expect when we're creating a system and expecting just to uh, to serve a web you know hundred websites with ten pages, it's different than serving ten websites with thousands of pages. So we specifically had one website, e-commerce website, who joined us pretty early on. It was still with us. Um, I think they have forty thousand pages now. Initially, we weren't planning on supporting that much, especially not from the right, out Actually, from the gates. So. That that sounds like an almost ideal situation. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's it's forcing you to address the scalability problems Definitely. before they get too bad, right? Yes, and that is a. Uh, we thought that the entire time, but it, it didn't always feel like it. <laughs> always Looking thought, oh, back, this is this is great, but it's terrible at the same time. Uh, and that also taught me a very valuable lesson, which is to scale beforehand. So that's why we're doing scaling now before we have um, before we get to the point where we have to uh, scramble and have some sleepless months, should I say? <laughs> Not nights, but months. <laughs> you mentioned that Woven IO is is looking to do more business globally. Yes. So for the, the global expansion, are you planning on following that same kind of top-down enterprise strategy or are you going to try to do more grassroots, bottom-up, convert the developer strategy worldwide? I have a feeling that the bottom-up is going to work better, but we're going to go with whatever works best. So we're going to try a little bit of each and see which one picks up and, just, and uh, really adapt. One thing that we learned from when we first launched and realized we were completely wrong about our market is that you really can't make assumptions. So we're going to go with an open mind and try everything, I think. But once we figure out what's going to work best for us, we'll focus on it and really try to, um, to, to, to uh, work on that until we, we find success. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And actually, there's, more, there's a lot more um, competition globally as well. So that's going to affect our approach. So one, one example of how we've worked on that in Japan is uh, we have a woven partners program, which is if you are a web development company who develops other websites, then you can join the Woven Partners program and sell Woven to your clients. So what's the advantage for the partners? Is it just uh, discounts on the services? Is it Really, the, the, the main thing the partners get is the uh, system. And, and the partnership program, it, it gives them tools to manage like multiple websites yes, and yes, things like does. that. It gives them tools to manage multiple websites. They can also um, a, a little bit customize Woven.io to, to appear more like a service they're offering. Th those are the main yeah, benefits. All right. Let me ask you some general Japan questions. Sure. So we talked before that Woven has a really multicultural, multinational team. This is something I, I, I see more and more Japanese startups who say they, they want to do that. They want to cultivate an international team. Right. What do you see as both the advantages and disadvantages? on a very practical level mm -hmm. of having a multicultural team? I think that Japan, and I'm going to make some very general statements here, so forgive me. <laughs> as, a, as a country, um, a lot of times, they just need to get out of their own way. They're very good at what they do, of course. I mean, you can, Japan's been very successful in many places, but by including um, people with, from different countries and into your, country, into your company is, I think, uh, I think it really can't be measured in terms of how valuable it is because when you want to have those startup ideals, I, I've seen it happen at our own company and I think we do a really good job at it, but not even intending to, you kind of pull towards you know, where you're from, where you grew up, it's not even uh, conscious, I don't think even, and 
having those those other people in the team, just having those people there and them speaking up and, and speaking their mind is critical to creating a healthy, thriving startup community in Japan, I think, because Japan historically and even now doesn't really have a thriving startup scene. Mm. And I think one of the reasons is because the whole the thinking of startups, the whole concept of startups really doesn't really fit with traditional Japanese thinking. Well, I, I think that there are a very large number of foreigners involved in the startup scene here in Japan. Yes. Much greater than the general population. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and that's true in San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing with a mixed team, getting down to really specific. So mm-hmm. some of the companies I've run, I've been the only non-Japanese. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware of the negatives and the inefficiencies that that involves. Mm-hmm. And my Japanese is pretty good, but it's not native. Right. And, you know, it takes me five times as long to read something in Japanese as it does anyone else in the company. I, you're preaching to me, I know. So, <laughs> I guess, like, so when you can look at the real specific negatives, mm-hmm. what are the really specific positives and advantages rather than just general concepts about multiculturalism. Okay, I'll give you a specific example. Um, our marketing director, he, his, his girlfriend, he's, Jap- he's Japanese, he's born in Japan, he's uh, Japanese. His girlfriend is actually American. And um, the product in a lot of ways has been something that I've nurtured and created a lot. Compared to a lot of other products in Japan, it doesn't really follow uh, this, I don't think it's very Japanese, for lack of a better word. And we often have problems with um, specifically maybe older gentlemen, businessmen who just really don't know how to use our product. We've, we've put in tutorials and stuff to try to help with that, but they just, they want a manual. You know, they want someone to explain it to them. Oh, it? yeah. Right. And he said he had his girlfriend use it and she had no problems. She just started like, oh, this is fine. Oh, she kind of figured it out as you go, which is much more of a, um, a Western approach, I think. Just kind of figure it out as you go. And uh, that was something that was really helpful to me to convince other people that we're doing the right thing as far as creating um, this minimalist approach and creating uh, the product that we have. He was surprised as well to, to, to see his girlfriend's reaction. I think he also used it one of her friends and she had the same thing. For her, it was no problem to, to use. Okay, that makes sense. Certainly, if you're looking for eventually going global, you're right. going to need that input from day one. Right. But actually, I have found that as well. Uh, Western users, both business users and developers, are much more willing to jump into something and kind of take it step by step. Japanese users want to sort of know the whole path forward before taking before that first they start. step. Yeah. <laughs> well, over the last 10 years, over the last five years especially, we've seen more and more foreign developers, foreign engineers in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's really beneficial to the startup ecosystem here and to the enterprise ecosystem for that matter. Yes. But what would your advice be to a foreign engineer who's thinking of coming to Japan to work for a startup? Um, Prepare yourself because (laughs) I don't mean to be very negative about it, but it's just the the fact is that Japanese culture is so different from Western culture. I think Japanese culture is maybe Korean might be close, but as far as a culture that is so different from Western culture, I think Chinese culture is maybe closer to Western than Japanese is. Japanese to me really is on the far end. Uh, when you first come here, the, I'd say the first year is like a honeymoon period where everything's, oh, wow, things are new. This is cool. And then after that, 
it can become very uh, kind of gray and depressing. So which would I would the people go through the cycles, right? Yes. So first the the first nine months a year, it's wonderful, everything's interesting. Yeah. The next nine months, it's sort of like I hate this place, <laughs> I want to go home. Yeah, and then it kind of stabilizes. So I, I would say that the the one thing I always tell people, even also when I speak with uh, people who are in interviews, I, I ask them, you know, I want to gauge if they're going to be able to, to make it here because some people come here and they leave in six months because they can't take it. You have some kind of support system. So you need somebody here who is from your country or at least or who's not Japanese who you can hang out with and chill with and complain to or <laughs> whatever you need because um, without it, it can be kind of, it can get really lonely here. I, I, I was just back in the States for two weeks and um, I had this happen to me before, but when I, when I first go back to the States, I'm always surprised that people start talking to me. I don't know them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hello, good morning to you too. Yes, we Americans are a very friendly Yes, bunch. I think more so than others maybe. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. It, it takes a second for me to get into it, but once I get into it, I'm like, oh, I, I, like, I like this. I like being able to talk and be friendly with people who even if I don't know you. In Tokyo is kind of like the worst of Japan in that way, whereas people, no one's going to talk to you if they don't know you, right? You, you said a number of times it's important to kind of prepare yourself. So what are, what are you preparing yourself for exactly? I mean, how do you prepare yourself? Yeah, I would say a lot of people um, look at Japan and have a very different image of the reality because they, expect, I think the way that the West looks at Japan is not realistic. They see it as kind of... People often say this land of technology and um, anime and crazy weird things that you everything everywhere you go is weird. But that, that yeah. is here. It is, it's, but it's not to the extent that that people expect it to be. So I you have think, to go look for it. Right. Yeah, you have to seek it out. Right. So when I say prepare yourself, I really mean to set your expectations um, that this isn't going to be what you've watched on anime or even you know if you watch dramas or whatever. It's not the same as that either. So just be um, honest with yourself about what, where you're, what are you getting into and don't expect it to be like a, a theme park. <laughs> I think that's really good advice. I mean, from my own experience, I've noticed that the, the Westerners who come to Japan expecting Japan to be a certain way, either yes. whether it's from anime or martial arts mm. or uh, the more traditional arts, mm. those guys usually don't last very long. No, they yeah. they usually go home after three or four years. I mean, it's a very different culture from where you're from, but it's a modern culture. One of the th the greatest things I found about living here is learning about this more than the differences, the similarities. What do all humans share? You know, that's an important insight for for business and startups as well. Mm -hmm. Is that it's easy to talk about the differences. Yes, but in building a business, it's the similarities that are mo that are most important. Definitely, because that's what's going to translate from Japan to the U.S. market or to Australia or to China or wherever your next step is. Mm -hmm. Hey, listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand mm -hmm. and I said you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, you could change the education system, the way people think about risk, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? <laughs> I would say if I had a magic wand, I would change um, people's willingness to be uncomfortable, which is, I think, common anywhere. They don't want to be uncomfortable, but specifically, willing to be afraid, willing to do something that you aren't sure the outcome and something that you're not used to doing. So, But let, let's dig into that a minute, because uncomfortable, I mean, I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to grow as a person, you need to push yourself into doing things that are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
But I'd say Japanese society on one level is very comfortable with being uncomfortable, if you will. Yeah. So the whole idea of gaman yes. and, and endurance <laughs> and, and putting up with things. Right. And working on something until you're great at it, just keep, keep on, keep right, on right. killing yourself every day. <laughs> so that's actually, Japan is probably better than anywhere at that. So that, that's, clearly not, that, yeah. that's clearly not what you're homing in on. So right. when you're talking about being uncomfortable, what do you, what do you mean exactly? And I guess I'm thinking more about um, users and clients, not so much inside my company, which when, I want to, when we want to do something different than they're used to doing, it's not considered. Oh, I see what you mean. So it's not necessarily that it's risky or dangerous. Right. It's just this feeling that we've never walked down this path before. I'm not before. used to this. I don't want to do this. You walk down the street and if there's construction, there's about four or five people waving you around the construction. <laughs> I, I saw three people when, yesterday just there's no foot traffic even near them and i think that's japan's downfall right there well yeah there'll be there'll be like one guy <laughs> one guy swinging a pick and like three right, guys directing yeah. traffic i think any other country maybe um they wouldn't be there because you'd be expected to figure it out and uh i think in in the states you're just expected to figure stuff out a lot more here and that's what i mean by uncomfortable where here you're guided through everything i feel like mm. comparatively um, especially as, as, as a uh, customer. If you're a customer somewhere, you're guided through the whole process, even sitting down at a table at a restaurant. That's true. I mean, and I think that that attitude kind of bubbles up even to corporate culture. Yes. So in corporate decision-making, I mean, if you're trying to sell something to a large enterprise customer, that sense of guiding the decision mm-hmm. is very much. The, the section chief will not... Look at, the, look at the data, look at the costs and make a decision, he'll kick it down to his subordinates who will work together and provide that guidance mm-hmm. and, and bring everyone on board and then present it to the chief who will then make that decision. Right, right, yeah. That's, yeah, that's basically what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that, that probably is the thing that I think is, it leads, leads to a lot of inefficiency, I think. I think so as well. I mean, it leads to inefficiencies. It leads to stagnation, a lack of innovation. Innovation, yes. by definition, is not necessarily going out of your comfort zone, but, well, maybe a little bit out of your comfort zone because mm-hmm. you're trying something new. Yeah. They just need a, a few more people, a few more startups, pushing that envelope, pushing that comfort level just a little bit. Right. Yeah. And great things will happen. Yeah. And I, what I see a lot is on the individual level, I don't see that as much of a problem. But when it gets to um, organizations and groups, it becomes more and more of a problem here. Which I'm sure it's the same anywhere, I guess. But oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like, yeah, I think in general, most people are wonderful one-on-one. When you get them in big groups, <laughs> that's when problems happen. I think also we've done a really great job of, of building a team. Our uh, Japanese developers specifically, I mean, all of our developers are great, but Japanese developers, I don't think are very typical Japanese developers because I don't think it's very typical to want to work for a startup here. You mm-hmm. want to work for a larger company usually. There must be a lot of Japanese developers who are attracted to that situation. Definitely, yeah. So that's what we found. There's a, there's, and, uh, and this comes back to the uncomfortable thing. I think developers in general, they want the kind of environment we've built, which is to just be left alone to, to do their work to not have to go through levels just to do something. So I think it's really something that any developer would want to, to work in, but uncomfortable to be in this, not just something that is new for work, but your whole life, this is the whole way that everything's organized here. It's not normal. Right, right. Yeah. Trying something new, pushing yourself a little yeah. bit further. Yeah. Well, excellent. Hey, 
Listen, Jeff, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a great time. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost-effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit, explore user and consumer dynamics, and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go, their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. And we're back. I really like Jeff's point that to make progress, Japanese founders and innovators or anyone else really needs to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Throughout Japanese business culture, there is an overwhelming need for certainty and for guidance. And in most large companies, that fear of uncertainty is crippling them. But even on a personal level, I've always believed that the quality of one's life is directly proportional to the amount of uncertainty that you can put up with. And Woven I.O. seems to have the right attitude towards the uncertainty they are facing in their international expansion. Their paid user growth in Japan has been driven primarily by relationships with and direct sales to enterprise customers. It's a top-down model that will be hard to replicate overseas, at least on a startup's budget. An enterprise sales force is expensive, so Woven I.O. will most likely need to develop a bottom-up, grassroots campaign to get developers and designers on board and then convince their managers that Woven is the right tool. I also found it interesting that Woven.io is planning on filling other niches in the localization ecosystem, such as email and help desk support. It's a lot of functionality for a relatively small startup to go after, but the market need is huge and no one company is dominating the market right now. So it's going to be exciting to watch how all these uncertainties play out over the next five years. If you've got an opinion or a story about localization or translation, Jeff and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 086 and tell us about it. And when you come by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Jeff and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. Oh, and before we go, I want to tell you a bit about our sponsors. No, no, don't worry. We're done with the ads for today, I promise. But over the past few months, I've had a number of people comment that I seem a little too enthusiastic in my praise for our sponsors. Now, of course, their sponsorship is what allows me to introduce you to all these amazing companies and founders. But more than that, every one of our sponsors really does contribute to the community here. And yes, I've turned down a couple companies that I didn't feel were a perfect fit. So hey, check out our sponsors, drop by their sites, and let them know you heard about them here. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.
Disrupting Japan is a proud member of the Japan Podcast Network. It's a community of some of the best audio content about Japan. So if you're looking for other high-quality podcasts about Japan, check out the other shows in the Japan Podcast Network.